Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. Today is a good day to dive through the Celestial Temple, right into the Gamma Quadrant for this week's episode all about Star Trek DS9. I'm your host, Reese Hendrick, and I'm super stoked to get into things, because not only is DS9 my favorite Star Trek series, but for this episode of Science Factual, I get to sit down with someone who knows more about Star Trek than anyone else I know that hasn't been directly involved with the development of a series. That person is Joe Rogers, proprietor of Growler's Tap Room on Southeast 82nd here in Portland. He hosts a weekly Star Trek trivia night on Thursdays starting at 8, which I highly recommend. I had a blast drinking Star Trek-themed beer from Stormbreaker Brewery and testing my nerd knowledge. And not to brag, but I came in second out of four on the solo repping team Tongo Agogo. Growlers also hosts the weekly Tap That Open Mic on Wednesdays, hosted by Danielle Porter, who's been a guest for Futurama, Doctor Who, and Star Wars, Maricha Halprich, who joined me and Chris Hudson to get into Star Trek The Next Generation, and Avery II, who I gave a pair of shorts that ended up being a little too baggy to be considered host shorts. That trio also hosts a weekly comedy showcase on Saturdays at Growlers, followed by another mic ran by Ben Levy, who you'll remember from Episode 6, where we got into Blade Runner. Check out all the rad stuff that's going on at Growlers by visiting their Instagram at GrowlersPDX82 for upcoming events and shenanigans. Alrighty folks, this week's episode is going to be heavy on the facts and interview as we'll be foregoing a comedy set at the end of the episode and skipping the water cooler facts for this week. But that's only because we've got a big old bowl of juicy tube grubs. I mean, facts for you to enjoy. Chilled and pre-chewed, of course. Captain, incoming message. It looks like we have an incoming transmission, Captain, from Starfleet Command. It's a Federation-wide... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! If you haven't seen Deep Space Nine, then this red alert is for you. As in, stop what you're doing and go watch every second of this show. I guarantee you that by the time you're done, DS9 will be your favorite Star Trek series. But before we take a trip through the wormhole to the facts quadrant, here's a quick synopsis and cast list just to brush you up on what's going on in the series and with whom. The main setting of Deep Space Nine, originally known as Terok Nor, was one of the most historically, politically, and strategically important space stations in the Alpha Quadrant during the latter half of the 24th century. The space station was constructed by Bajoran slave labor overseen by the Cardassians in orbit of Bajor during their occupation of the planet. Under Federation administration following the Cardassian withdrawal, the station was relocated into the Bajoran system's Denorius belt under orders from Commander Benjamin Sisko. Shortly after his arrival, Sisko and character Jadzia Dax discover a stable wormhole in Bajoran space between the Alpha Quadrant and the unexplored Gamma Quadrant, and the station is moved near the wormhole's entrance. The wormhole is the home of powerful non-corporeal aliens whom the Bajorans worship as the Prophets. Sisko is revered by the Bajorans as the Prophet's emissary, although he is initially uncomfortable with being a religious figure, he does gradually grow to accept his role. Deep Space Nine and Bajor quickly become a center for exploration, interstellar trade, political maneuvering, and finally open conflict. Threats come not only from Cardassians, Klingons, and Romulans from the Alpha Quadrant, but later from the Dominion, 
a powerful empire in the Gamma Quadrant ruled by a race of shapeshifters known as the Founders. The starship USS Defiant is assigned to help protect the station. When the Dominion and the Cardassians take up arms against the Federation and its allies starting in the fifth season, Deep Space Nine becomes a key Federation base in the Dominion War. Alright, getting onto the cast list, up first we have Avery Brooks, who plays Commanding Officer Benjamin Sisko, and amongst the actors to read for the role of Captain Sisko were Carl Weathers and Eric LaSalle. James Earl Jones and Tony Todd were offered the role, but declined. Todd, who appeared as Worf's brother Kern on Star Trek The Next Generation, made two appearances on this show, first as an elderly Jake Sisko in Season 4, Episode 3, The Visitor, then as Kern in Season 4, Episode 15, Sons of Moke. He appeared in Star Trek Voyager Season 4, Episode 16, Prey, as a Herojan hunter. Then we have Odo, the Chief of Security, played by René Abergenois. He's a changeling from the Gamma Quadrant. Julian Bashir, Chief Medical Officer, played by Alexander Siddick. Chief Science Officer Jadzia Dax, played by Terry Farrell. You'll notice that when the Trill originally appeared on The Next Generation, they had prosthetics on their foreheads. When they cast Terry Farrell as the Trill Jadzia Dax, that idea went out the window. After filming some of her scenes, they changed to simple dots because they thought Farrell was so beautiful that they didn't want to mess up her features with a fake forehead. That brings us to Jake Sisko, played by Siroc Lofton, who does a great job as Captain Sisko's son and has an actually really great story arc over the course of the seasons. Miles O'Brien, the Chief Operations Officer, played by Colm Meany, who's more than a hero, he's a union man. Uh, there was a scene that was cut for syndication that showed Picard transporting O'Brien from the Enterprise to Deep Space Nine as a transition. This was intended to be a bridge between TNG and the new series, and even the music changed from The Next Generation to Deep Space Nine. The scene was later restored on the DVD release. Then we have eccentric Ferengi bar owner Quark, played by Armin Shimmerman. First Officer Kira Norris, played by Nana Visitor. Strategic Operations Officer Worf, played by Michael Dorn, that's another TNG crossover. And Counselor Esri Dax, in later seasons, played by Nicole DeBoer. In supporting cast, we have Mark Alemo as Ducat, Aaron Eisenberg as Nog, Max Grodenschick as Rom, Andrew Robinson as Elam Garrick, Rosalind Chow as Keiko O'Brien, Wallace Shawn as Grandmaster Zek, <laughs> Philip Anglim as Barile Antos, Louise Fletcher as Kai Wim Adami, Salome Jens as the female founder, Kenneth Marshall as Michael Eddington, Robert O'Reilly, who plays Galron. What color? What is eyes? And yes, I know, that clip happens to be from TNG and not DS9, but a Galron classic nonetheless. Chase Masterson, who plays Lita, Rom's wife. Penny Johnson Gerald, who plays Cassidy Yates, and you, you can also see her in Orville. Jeffrey Combs, who we'll get to in a minute, but he plays Brunt, Weiyun, Tiran, and Officer Mulcahy. Then we have Ishka, Rom, and Quark's mother, played by Andrea Martin Cecily Adams, J.G. Hertzler, who plays Martok, Casey Biggs as Damar, and James Darren as that crooner, Vic Fontaine. Well, there's no time like the present, unless, of course, you work for the Department of Temporal Investigations, so grab a cup of Ractagino and check out these facts. Star Trek Deep Space Nine is an American science fiction television series created by Rick Berman and Michael Piller. The fourth series in the Star Trek media franchise, it originally aired in syndication from January 3rd, 1993 to June 2nd, 1999, spanning 176 episodes over seven seasons. Now, while Deep Space Nine is Star Trek through and through, with phasers, shuttles, a federation, Klingons, and so on, its core is that of a western. Producers Brandon Tartikoff and Rick Berman wanted the series to be a deviation from the rest of its Star Trek kin and looked to the 1958 western The Rifleman for inspiration. On the surface, it's easy to see the comparisons. Not unlike Sisko and Jake moving to the abandoned deep space station at the edge of the wormhole, The Rifleman follows the tale of another widowed man and his son moving to a rickety town at the edge of the frontier, bringing law and order where they can. At first, the idea was to set the show on a planet, but that didn't survive. The producers decided that the location shooting would be too costly and that Trek fans wanted to see a show set in space. That's why they moved the idea to a space station. Which, in and of itself, was a costly idea. 
The pilot episode Emissary required an enormous amount of work in post-production because of the special visual effects involved. 250 special effects shots to be exact. It took 200 people five months to complete the visual effects, including a battle between the Federation and the Borg, Odo's morphing head, and Sisko's journey to meet the Prophets. With its premiere, Emissary became the highest-rated syndicated show at the time. Emissary scored a whopping 18.8% of the syndicated television market and was number one in syndication in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, and Washington. Deep Space Nine's focus on characters and consequences was an enormous change of pace from previous series. Since the action was generally situated on the titular station, this was critical to holding the audience's interest. While we saw many relationships bud up across the span of the show, such as Julian and Garrick's mischievous friendship, or more, or like Quark and Odo's bromance, none had the same fun and punch as Worf and Dax's eventual coupling. Oddly, no plotline of the sort was conceived, though, beforehand. It wasn't until the cast and crew noticed the excellent chemistry between the two characters that the thought was formulated and eventually executed successfully. The character Ensign Rowe from The Next Generation was the foundation of DS9. Ensign Rowe Laren, played by Michelle Forbes from The Next Generation, was a very popular character, and DS9 was originally set on Bajor specifically to cast Rowe as the first officer. However, actress Michelle Forbes didn't want to commit to a six-year contract, so Nana Visitor was cast as Bajoran Kira Nerys instead. Now, we can't talk DS9 without getting further into Jeffrey Combs, who is a fantastic actor. In fact, he's so fantastic that he's played eight different characters on Star Trek, a few of which you likely don't recognize him as. His most familiar role to fans of Deep Space Nine would be that of the devout Vorta Weyun and multiple cloned versions of said character. Secondly, he played the Eternal Thorn in Quark's side, the Ferengi Brat FCA. That's the Ferengi Commerce Authority to you. Going deeper into DS9, Combs has a stint as Tyron in the episode Meridian, and as Kevin Mulcahy in the exceptional Season 6 episode Far Beyond the Stars. Beyond Deep Space Nine, Combs appeared in the sister series Voyager as Pank in Tsunkatsu. Finally, in the divisive Star Trek Enterprise, Combs appears as Krem, and then the major recurring character Thylex Shran, even getting the honor of appearing in the series' final episode. Combs' Trek history goes back even further as he auditioned for the role of William T. Riker. Despite not being cast, it was Frakes who gave Combs his first Deep Space Nine role as Tyron, which was the impetus for the deluge of subsequent roles. Now, it's pretty well universally agreed upon that Elam Garrick is not just a great Star Trek character, but one of the most interesting characters ever on television, period. You never quite knew where he stood, but his charming demeanor and humble claims of being a simple tailor endeared him to all who watched the series. Andrew Robinson's whimsical performance, mesmerizing grin, and unsettlingly wide eyes made for a wonderfully memorable character in a cast already filled with winners, and it was the actor's interest in Garrick that spawned many of his trademarks, particularly his much-debated sexuality. The writers for DS9 had hoped to have a gay character in the series, but when the network intervened, they tried to work around it by having Garrick's relationship and interest in Julian Bashir be intentionally vague. More definitively, Robinson incorporated a repressed omnisexuality into the character, despite it never being referenced on screen. Thankfully, in Andrew Robinson's excellent Garrick-centric book, A Stitch in Time, he was able to explore Elam's omnisexuality, more or less making it canon, finally leaving yet another personal touch on the magnificent character. You know, I still have a lot of questions to ask you about your past. I've given you all the answers I'm capable of. You've given me answers, all right, but they were all different. What I want to know is, out of all the stories you told me, which ones were true and which ones weren't? My dear doctor, they're all true. Even the lies? Especially the lies. Alright, here's a quick list of my top five episodes, which was hard to do because there are a ton of fantastic episodes to choose from. At number five, we have Who Mourns for Morn? That's season six, episode 12. In this episode, Morn dies, leaving his entire estate to Quark, but some of Morn's old acquaintances want a piece of the action, and a piece of Quark, it seems like, as well. Coming in at number four, we have Inquisition, that's season six, episode 18 where an officer from the Starfleet Department of Internal Affairs arrives on the station and accuses Dr. Bashir of being a Dominion spy. This is the first time we see the character Sloane from Section 31, played by William Sadler, who does a great job with the character. 
Also, the episode was directed by Michael Dorn. Coming in at number three, we have Trials and Tribulations. That's season five, episode six. When Temporal Investigations arrives on Deep Space Nine, Sisko recounts how he and the crew of the Defiant traveled back in time to the 23rd century to prevent the assassination of Captain James T. Kirk during the original Enterprise's mission to Space Station K-7. At number two, we have In the Pale Moonlight. at season six, episode 19. That episode has to do with the mounting losses in the Federation-Dominion War and the Spectre of Defeat, where Captain Sisko enlists Garrick's help to persuade the Romulans to join the Federation-Klingon alliance to win the war. However, Sisko soon learns that, to save the Federation, he may have to betray the values it stands for. It's a fake! And my personal favorite, number one, is Far Beyond the Stars, that's Season 6, Episode 13. Experiencing a vision from the prophets, Sisko sees himself as Benny Russell, a science fiction writer in the 1950s, who struggles with civil rights and inequality when he writes the story of Captain Benjamin Sisko, a black commander of a futuristic space station. This episode is heralded as the best DS9 episode by many fans, and for good reason. As a standalone story, it's compelling enough even without any context of the show itself. As an honorable mention, I have to give a nod to Past Tense Parts 1 and 2, that's Season 3, Episodes 11 and 12, which finds Sisko, Bashir, and Dax trapped 300 years in the past, confronting one of the darkest hours in Earth's history, the Bell Riots. Sisko plays an incredibly pivotal role in turning the societal tide from exploitation to post-scarcity. Unfortunately, the darker times in the episode takes place in the year 2024, and the way things are going doesn't seem very far off. That's Star Trek once again, calling their shot. I just realized that all of these episodes are in Season 6, save Trials and Tribulations, but that's for good reason. Both Joe and I agree that Season 6 is perhaps the best season, and these episodes certainly help bolster that opinion. Hey, how's about a few rapid-fire facts before we switch into interview mode? Now, although we only rarely see it, there is an ATM in Quark's bar. It dispenses the various types of currency used by major races visiting the station, Federation Credits, Bajoran Litas, Cardassian Lex, and Ferengi Latinum. Davo! <laughs> that is Davo, isn't it? <laughs> the character of Garrick, a former spy who works as a tailor on the station, was inspired by certain John Le Carre spy novels, particularly Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy four qualities that Garrick certainly emulates. Armin Shimmerman, who played Quark, and Mark Alemo, who played the Cardassian Gul Dukat, appeared as one of the first actors to portray members of their respective species, and both appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation. Shimmerman played the Ferengi officer Latek in TNG's The Last Outpost from 1987, while Alemo played the Cardassian officer Gul Masset in TNG's The Wounded in 1991. Constable Odo was originally envisioned as a young Clint Eastwood type. When René Aubergenois was called in for his audition, the casting director told him that none of the previous actors had been grouchy enough. So Aubergenois improvised his lines using his most gravelly voice and secured the role. Odo's scoff eventually became such a character trademark that the screenwriters would often script it into his lines as a harumph. Harumph! 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 I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Give the governor harumph. Harumph! You watch your ass. When Cole Meany was fitted for his Deep Space Nine uniform, he made two requests of the costume designers. He explained that unlike the other officers, the non-commissioned Chief O'Brien was a working man. So he needed to be able to roll up his sleeves, and he needed pockets for his tools. The costume department altered his uniform accordingly. The aforementioned episode Trials and Tribulations, the time travel story, which was written to mark the 30th anniversary of the Star Trek franchise, uh, the DS9 crew travels back to 2268 at the time of Star Trek, the original series, Season 2, Episode 15, The Trouble with Tribbles, from 1967, to prevent Arne Darvin from assassinating Captain Kirk and changing the timeline. Due to the ages of William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and the other original cast members, it was decided to have the show's cast interact with the original footage of the Star Trek episode. Blue screen and computer technology were used that had recently been employed for Forrest Gump, another Paramount property. The Maquis was the name of the French resistance fighters during World War II, which adds an interesting dynamic to Eddington's Javert-Jean Valjean complex with Sisko, as those are characters from Les Miserables, which takes place around the time of the French Revolution. The Maquis, of course, being the resistance fighting group that's operating between the Federation and Cardassian territories. Now, the uniforms initially worn on this show were designed to look different from those worn on its parents' show, The Next Generation, with a colored shoulder and a gray undershirt. 
Beginning with the movie Star Trek The Next Generation in 1994, however, these new uniforms were adopted by the Next Generation crew and Starfleet as a whole. This change was made when a new style of uniform designed for generations was rejected. From the mid-fifth season of this show and Star Trek First Contact, the movie from 1996, another type of uniform was issued by Starfleet, now with gray shoulders and colored undershirt, while Voyager, having no way of knowing about the change, retained the earlier version, distinguishing the two series from each other. It is also worth mentioning that the DS9-style uniforms are very similar to the ones worn by Starfleet cadets in The Next Generation, most notably in Season 5, Episode 19, The First Duty. Wolf 359, mentioned as the battle site between the Borg and the Federation where Sisko lost his wife Jennifer, is a real star that is 7.5 light years from Earth. It is frequently stated that there are 285 official Ferengi rules of acquisition, although only 44 were ever mentioned in Deep Space Nine and subsequent Star Trek series. Because of fans continuously asking for a complete list and knowing that someone would otherwise make one sooner or later, Ira Stephen Bear finally took it upon himself to write the Ferengi rules of acquisition, which of course are available for purchase. Oh, and in case you were wondering, based on our calendar and not star dates, the series takes place from the years 2369 to 2375. For some more rapid-fire facts, check out Fandom.com and IMDB. They both have a cargo load of trivia facts about DS9, and there just isn't enough time in an hour to really get into the series season by season, which I will definitely be doing in a future Part 2 episode. Up next, we have a great interview with Star Trek superfan Joe Rogers. We got to nerding out about our favorite Trek over a couple of beers after his trivia night. Kapla! I really like your shirt. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a great shirt. For those of you who are obviously just listening, I'm here with Joe Rogers. Hello. He's wearing a very silent shirt because Morn never, well, actually, I guess Morn can never shut up. Morn actually speaks once. Not speaks. He makes noise only once. Season two, I believe it's episode 11, when they cut to the bar at the very beginning of it, he's laughing. He okay. makes a big, boisterous laugh. The only time you ever hear Morn actually make noise but okay. he does laugh. What? That's, well, that's <laughs> that's why you run a Star Trek trivia night, which is what we just finished doing. It was such a fun time. I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. What you hear in the background is, is the original series playing on a projector screen, which, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. Like, you know, a lot of Star Trek series, they have overarching storylines, Especially, you know, starting with the next generation onward, you know, it was all about being involved with a, a certain you know, story set or, or villain or, or just like redemption arcs, things like that. But they're all kind of one-off episodes in the original series. To be put in any order. In any order. Yeah. yeah. I, are there... And that was by design. You know? Okay. Yeah, you know, like because by... it was a weekly thing. Yeah. You know, television was also filmed differently back then, unless it was a melodrama like Dallas or something. VCRs didn't exist when they first came out, let alone TiVo and all that, and that's what Deep Space Nine changed about all of it. That's too true, yeah. And speaking of VHS, do you have a, a rather... I mean, I'm sure this is just part of your throwaway collection over here. But those are the prizes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, the prizes. The... No, here at my bar we accept cash, credit cards, and Star Trek memorabilia. Okay. That is absolutely, we'll give you a tab all night long. You bring me anything with Star Trek on it. And Latinum? Oh, if you got Latinum, I mean, I got a stack right there, but if That's you got any more, I'll add it to it. Now, so. is that the real gold press stuff, or is that the stuff that, of, of Morin's alleged thousand, thousand bars? Does it tink? Is it, there a... it makes a plastic thud. Ah. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I am in the process of making a tongo table, so I do have a welder who is going to be making me platinum pieces, so nice. they do make the clink sound when you throw them into the bin. Very nice. So. I like that. <laughs> I like the dedication. Well, we're set here at Growler's Tap Room on 82nd, mm -hmm. and uh, usually I'm here Wednesdays or Saturdays for comedy. This is the first time that I've done the trivia night, and it was super fun, dude. Like that was glad you're here. That man. was a great time. I'm gonna have to bring my boy Eli, who's the DM for. Well, I'm trying to join their party. Nice, nice. But there's a lot of betting involved. <laughs> as, as, as should be. As, as there should be. be. Yeah, yes, that's yes. true. I'm still working on my character's backstory. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he's a gnome. 
But we are here to, speaking of gnomes, I guess Rumpelstiltskin, we are here to talk about DS9, mm-hmm. uh, Star Trek DS9. Oh yeah, Rumpelstiltskin, yeah. that was a terribly awesome episode. If your yeah. imagination got away with you. Yeah. Right, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love DS9 for that reason, it's so conceptual at times. It's the only one that took itself not seriously in a different way, I think. Like, sure. They were willing to embrace the absurd episodes to be the filler uh, out of the larger story. Like, like it was all the Ferengi episodes add to the story, but only tangentially. You know, like they're just a little tiny piece, and that's the filler on the side. You know, like or they're just pivotal in our developmental history, having landed or crash landed at Roswell. Green men. Like, yeah, yeah, little yeah, green men, one of the best. So, yeah, absolutely. So all over the place, but I mean. They do bring it home with those storylines that we all know and love. Basing it on a space station was such a smart move. That was one of my favorite pieces of the entire series was... At at first, I didn't... Like, my first couple times watching the series, I watched them all multiple times. But, like, the first couple times when I was younger and whatnot, I I didn't quite get the context, I think, that that made it my favorite part of it, was that if you imagine it's a Western... And it's a frontier town, like, and that the Bajorans are the, the the native inhabitants of this area, and that they're attempting to establish some level of a different type of civilization in that area, and that when you look at it, where it's like like almost like a Deadwood uh, uh, allegory to it, like like Al Swearingen is goddamn Quark, you know, and that kind of stuff, and that sure. and that, that that everybody plays that role as more of like a Western frontier town. I think that's an like. in, that's an interesting connection. I I think that like because their involvement with Bajor really does violate the Prime Directive in so far as like in they are so a, many ways they're just towing they're, lines. they're a free warp society that happened to have been exploited by one of our enemies, mm. and then like fell under our jurisdiction, if you will, based on, like... I mean, and the only reason why they have warp technology is from the colonization. Right. And so, it, like, they, they would have never been accepted into the Federation on if their it weren't for right. the fact that they had been such an afflicted, like, culture. Like, they, they were suppressed and completely overrun, and that the Federation and their ideals is going to bend the rules right. to let them in. And Cisco's given the impossible task of doing it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, he, he does, and I think that the device of him being the emissary is a great investment connection. You know, like, his character has to be invested in Bajor's affairs. And, and that, that he's reluctant more about and more, it. Right, at, yeah. at first. And then as he encounters orbs and more and more prophecies come true to some degree, mm. I think that he accepts his role. Believes and believes more and more. Right. I mean, he sacrifices himself in the end. He's willing to sacrifice his son right. for it. He's, yeah. he's absolutely willing to sacrifice his own son, yeah. and then other people have to step in and stop it. When they make that connection on it, that, that Kira's willing to give her life for the prophets, and that Jake's not willing to give his life for it, but Cisco is, right. and Jake doesn't have a decision, but he that's that's probably the real point when he accepts the, being in the emissary. Well, and at one point, he's doing all of these actions on the behest of the Federation, like with especially like battling the Jem'Hadar, and he does get invested in it, but it's almost like a means to an end. Like, he knows that he's going to survive this because of his larger-than-life, you know, like, prophesized... His role uh, in the future, yeah. yeah. Yeah, his, like, yeah, his role in the... Yeah, exactly. I mean... He you knows know. he has... He has to... I mean, he's got two different charges. He's got Starfleet telling him, bring Bajor in and protect them. And the the role of the emissary is, being, is so unclear to him to begin with until we get to the seventh season when it finally comes revealed to him about why why he has this whole connection in the, in the beginning... It's it's he's always trying to fight the duality of, of those two different responsibilities, but sure. the, it, it, when it finally becomes clear to him that it, it's it's no longer an issue for him to fight, it, he has to just accept who he is. He knows that he's half wormhole alien, he's half prophet. And that's a really late on version to it, but him getting there, I think, was some of the most fun parts of it. Was him like the poet 
from 200 years in the past arrives and says that he is the, the emissary, and he's super happy to right. let the he's job like, go. He's that's like, fantastic. Okay, yeah, you got it, man. I don't have yeah. to do this anymore. Sure. You know? Yeah, he's like, wow, finally. And then people start going to him, and he's all of a sudden like, man, I kind of missed the, you know, maybe, you know, you know like, and so it, it was it, like O'Brien when he was like, having to deal Dalrock. with the talk, the talk, no, the Dalrock. Dalrock, uh, yeah. Dalrock, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, the storytelling. Yeah. God, that's one of the worst episodes. <laughs> I know, he's just like, oh, I'm one not, of the worst episodes. But I love them all. The I got, like, I've even done a trivia night where I did only my like what I consider the worst episodes. What mm. everybody considers the worst episodes. Sure. But just perennially I, bad. Yeah, just yeah. perennially. But I love some of those so much. Like move, uh, 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 move along home. Uh, season two with the Wadif uh, that they oh, come yeah, in with the game. Shop, yeah. yeah, so it's chapter two, yeah. chapter three. You know, like that's right. Yeah, it, like like I. Love that episode. I People love the scene where, was... where Quark is breaking down. He's yeah. like, "Don't make me cheat, yeah. please, please." Alan Moraine, count two, four. Yeah. Alan Moraine, then three more. Alan Moraine, come with me. Alan Moraine, and then you'll see. The, you know? That <laughs> sequence actually says a lot about the characters that they grow into as individuals. Hmm. Dax is very childlike, and she's like, "Yeah, I'll do I it." Can play yeah. the game. I'll Kira it out. is like, you know, just like very. I'm gonna punch my way through this. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not into this you know uh, Bashir just kind of goes along with it and Cisco is just like this is a means to an end which is and they they fuck around with time a lot don't they speaking of the original series I loved that crossover episode Mm. That was so cool the way that they did that with the triple trouble that, that was that was really a fantastic episode yeah. in that I mean it, it, it obviously like they had to it, like squeeze in their storyline to it for how it worked, but yeah, I, it, I think it, it was it fantastic. Did it was my beautiful job. Episodes, yeah. yeah, I mean, like and then it, the Bell riots. Uh, oh my god! Well, that, that was a super cool. All the Bell riots pieces yeah. on it because of some seems so prescient. Like they're talking about like homeless people in the streets and like sanctuary and cities. I mean, has that was a whole a, yeah. like like monologue about that. I can't understand that in such an advanced society that people have learned how to not care or forgotten how sure. you know, like to care. And that like that it's just apathy. Well that, that, that the motif is, is present, I think, in a lot of Star Trek. In TNG you have the episode where there's the, the two planets where one is hooked on the the drugs the drug the that the other produces. produces. Yeah. Anyway, uh, before we get too much further, the Instagram for Growlers PDX is Growlers PDX82. Yeah. I have a guy that does all that for the bar. That's a good guy to have. Yeah. It's Joe, the sound guy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's good on the internet. I'm not. I used to run a uh, trivia page online for a Star Trek archives trivia. Nice. It got really, really popular. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. But I had to stop doing it because it... It made it where I couldn't watch Star Trek anymore for enjoyment because sure. I was always under the gun to be writing trivia for the website because we're putting up every day. Yeah, and that so, is labor intensive. Yeah, and it just meant that I couldn't put on an episode unless it was the next episode I was writing trivia for, mm. and then I couldn't just put it on the background or just I had to actually be writing notes and writing my trivia. And so it just it, it made it where I couldn't enjoy my favorite show anymore. So I'm I stopped. Sure, I'm sure doing there's it. also pressure like making connections in your mind. You're like, oh, I have notes for this somewhere. You feel like Charlie Day, like trying to yeah, figure out. It was just. It was just I didn't want to yeah. ruin my favorite thing by putting too right. much into it. And so yeah. I stopped doing that. And like, I'm going to give the website over to the guy, other guy that was helping me with it. Like, he wants to keep going, and I'm just going to yeah. give the site to him uh, so he can keep writing on it. And then also for the, the Trivia Live, I've written over 750 fucking questions now for That's it. That's immense. It's, That's <laughs> like, a lot, so dude. much. <laughs> so I'm just going to give him that to put on the website, too. Like you well, can there, use all that material. There's a reason why so, we're sitting down. I mean, you, the, you're one of the most knowledgeable people I know when it comes to Star <laughs> Trek, and that's saying right. a lot. Right. So, yeah, it is uh, <laughs> at GrowlersPDX82 on Instagram if you want to check it out for upcoming shows. We also have the food cart here, the Thai food cart, uh, Henry's Market, conveniently located off of 82nd near Washington in beautiful southeast Portland. Uh, and as I mean, there's more outdoor stuff coming. I'm sure as the because our summers last through September basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to be quickly, doing the comedy nights out on the on the patio next week, mm -hmm. and we're always going to be doing the trivia out on the patio just so we got the nice, nice summer nights for it. Yeah, it is, and it's a beautiful night. Let me ask you this: What was your first exposure to science fiction? When I was a kid, like I'm 40 now, so when I was growing up, uh, we had a big box 
like piece of furniture TV with a giant knob that clicked back and forth to it. We had three channels. But after dinner, every night, my dad liked to watch Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay, And nice. it was already syndicated at this point. This is already in reruns in the late 90s, mid-90s, that kind of stuff, when I was paying attention to it. And it would be like mom, dad, sister sitting on the couch, three seats. I'm sitting on the floor right in front of it. And after dinner, every night, we watch The Next Generation. Nice. And it, it was just something that was like a like just a tradition in our family for it and that but my dad liked to after every episode talk about it like okay. we would sit down and just play, like everybody he was really into it and so that was my first like initiation of it all that he would like to go through kind of like well what were they talking about in this episode like what social issues what philosophical issues what type of like struggles that are occurring in this and why how does that represent something in the world today yeah i think it does a lot of that there was a lot of social commentary that wasn't not that was not only contemporary but also is far reaching into our own time mm. and yeah because they deal a lot with sentience and sovereignty and you know, pretty much every issue that we exist with today that's sure. still in contest right now all of philosophy all of social issues i mean like the concepts of, of of autonomy to one's body to let alone the rights of anybody's like choice in their life i like all of that is always a driver pretty much what he pointed out to me was that every episode was about something other than what you saw in the episode it sure was, yeah, oh, they're, they're tackling some other issue and through allegory or through direct example but, yeah absolutely but it was always had an, a, a, an idea behind it star trek's and, always been very much ahead of its time i mean you know like the first time that i ever considered non-binary individuals was the episode i forget what the race is called but where Riker. Oh, the, As, the, the it, third race, the, 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 I mean, the third gender that they have. Cogenitors. That, the cogenitors, that is one. Oh, we know, that's, that's from uh, Enterprise, sorry. Yeah, um, yes, but there's also the, the one The androgynous where, one where he meets the woman who decides she wants to be a woman, but right. they're not allowed to choose, choose gender. gender. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. yeah. If she chooses to be female. Or even Dax... Mm-hmm. With a, a symbiont, but like you know that it had past lives as a man or a woman. There's also a lot of fan theories regarding relationships and further fan theories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know regarding like uh, Bashir and Garrick. Oh well, I mean, it's, well, I have the the book, the Stitch in Time. Stitch in Time, sure. It's so Robinson, great. Yeah. I mean, Andrew Robinson writing about that, where he was given the latitude that his notes he wrote as the character of Elam Garrick. What, that he gave them to the producers and said, what do you think? And they said, this all fits, it's all canon, we call it good, great, you can release it. And then, then so, like, he very explicitly says that, like, his only intention when he first met Bashir was he wanted to have sex with him. That yeah. was it. He just, like, he was attracted to him. It was evident And he to was me. trying yeah. to. And that, yeah. that like... It, I thought it was pretty obvious to me, but when I was younger, first watching it, maybe I wasn't quite catching on to it. Sure. But it, like, he's straightforward, flirting with the man, and the entire time he is. And the, I think that they do fall in love with each other, but it just becomes a different style of relationship. They become friends. But, yeah. But, but, but like, some would even call started. that a deeper love. Yeah. It, like, it, it was, Garrick just wanted to get down to begin with. He was like, you're a young, pretty boy here. Yeah. But well, it, it turned out that they had more in common. I, so. I love how much Garrick's character evolves over the course of the series as well yeah and and how he is able to uh reconcile with his father well i will say always to this day that the name inabrin tane is one of the just most beautiful craft it does roll off the top it's just such a beautiful name like and that character was really well done i mean like really well done like Right up to the end of his, I mean, right up to his death, he just wouldn't accept that he wasn't that powerful man. Yeah, the, the ultimate delusion of power that an Aubrantain ran with was that it would never run out. He was always going to stay a one step ahead. He was oh, his always smart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when they preemptively attacked the Jem'Hadar fleet, yeah. Which was a beautiful story arc to put in. Like, oh, I thought sure. the idea that the Cardassians and the Romulans, well, yeah, the, the Tau Shi'ar and the Obsidian Order. Of course they're going to do their own thing. They're they're the secret police. Oh, and they should have thrown love... Section 31 into it, you know? like. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I love the Section 31 arc. I, and... I will say this is probably the, the greatest tragedy of that whole series, yeah. is we never got a scene of 
Garrick talking to Sloane. Sloane, yeah. Garrick and Sloane never spoke. Ah, I want that scene so bad. I would have loved to see Garrick. Master spy, it's a master spy. Yeah, just to see him I mean, to have been a gardener on Romulan and survived. Yep. As a spy. Well, he also assassinated two Romulan senators while he was there as a gardener. Mm. So he was definitely not a gardener. Is that from Stitch in Time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I get to read it. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, but he, I, he was only there just to go ahead and, uh, you know, drop a couple things in a drink and place, sure. well, not even a drink, place a thing in a plant that would then turn into a drink that he knew it would go to. That's really sly shit. Third level of city and order shit. Right yep. yeah, that's, that's what Anabrin Tain was yeah. proud of. Yeah, well. <laughs> and, and it was his biological son, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. His, his yeah. biological son, yeah. and Mila uh, was his actual mother, even though she was the housekeeper. Right. And that was hidden from him, even though he knew it his whole life. Sure. It was never explicitly said. Okay. Which is also. I had, that, I had that feeling with their interactions because she is overtly motherly. Yeah, like, it's yeah. mom and dad. You know, yeah. Like, but it's the housekeeper. And also the concern that. I mean, like, yes, you show concern for a housekeeper, but, like, the way that he reacted when she was hit with He's the blast. He's seen a million like, people yeah. die and then right. do shit about shit, it, yeah. but, yeah, she died and that was a big deal. Right, you know? yeah. No, that, that spoke volumes for sure. So, okay, which series is your favorite slash desert island pick? Like, somebody's going to... I'm, I'm going to maroon you on an island with a television. Deep Space Nine. And yeah. you get to use coconuts to make it work. I, I could just reenact all of Deep Space Nine by myself. I would get a couple of Seymours uh, um, or whatever it is, the, the, the volleyballs. I'd paint faces on the coconuts and I could... Wilson. Make whole, Wilson, that yeah. was it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can make the whole crew on it and I'll re- just reenact the episodes myself. Sure. On my deserted island. But so, you're, yeah. you're also well Storied. I mean, like you know, you, you. I'm sure you'd be able to do vast swatches of Voyager and TNG as well. And Enterprise. And Enterprise. I, Enterprise. <laughs> I fuck with Enterprise too. A lot of people, I, you know, they sleep on Enterprise. On it, but yeah. it's, I mean, it's got a lot of. It's it's not the best of series by far, but it's it's got some. I mean, actually, I will say one of my favorite episodes of all of Star Trek is Carbon Creek from Enterprise. Okay. And it's when they You'll go, have to refresh me on what the uh, premise is. Uh, T'Pol is explaining that her mother, uh, T'Pol... Oh, uh, the backstory of the created the Velcro yeah. in 1934 in Pennsylvania. Pre-first contact yeah, landing, and, yeah. And they, and they, because that's yeah. technically... It's a super interesting story. Not the very first first contact. The very first first contact is in the original series when uh, Spock goes back to 1930s New York with the gangsters, uh, so that's technically first first contact. But the next one after that is Carbon Creek. But like non temporally influenced. Yeah, like no, just nobody like knows. Sequenced. They right. were just there, but right. nobody knows. But technically, that's the first contact. You know, like Spock's originally. Then it's uh, uh, I believe her name is Tapel. I'm not sure. No, maybe that's a different. No, you're, you're, no, you're yeah. correct. Yeah, Tapel is Tapel is Tapel's mother. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Carbon Creeks, yeah. uh, Pennsylvania. And they like, look. They look identical. I mean, it's played by the yeah, same actor. Same yeah. actor. But like that episode was so. I mean, like it just. It's, it's really Completely good. outside of the normal Star Trek world. They're not doing right. anything in space or anything. But it's just a really well, like well done episode describing about like how an alien would interact with us at that time and it, it being actually not a, a like a horror story because normally always when aliens interact with humans, it's bad and violent and terrible and that stuff and it was like no we're just crashed here and we're just trying to get the fuck out we just want to go home and so you, you <laughs> see that at first there's also the development of emotion like you see an emotional development that that transpires from the crew because they realize at some point like you know one is desperately trying to make recontact one is like okay i'm just gonna live here and do my thing like not even my beanie. like and i always thought i would love it if they did an episode or two about what happened to mistral after they left because mm-hmm. they left him there on the planet like right the adventures of mistral would be a great story how did he keep himself quiet how did he keep hidden what did he learn you could do a whole forrest gump thing where he's in the background of every major event of history doing something you know he lives 200 plus years Mistral could have done so much stuff on the planet in that time frame like, the, the temporal uh, prime directive hmm. is a head fuck because sometimes you have to let things transpire sometimes you don't I mean mm-hmm. it, it seems like somebody's at the helm and I feel like Discovery is going to touch that arc in some way shape or form soon I hope they do 
Because they never explained the whole temporal prime directive thoroughly. Sure. Yeah, like it was never a sussed out idea. Fuck with it. Yeah, they're like some stuff's cool, some stuff's not. Yeah, and like like because the Voyager temporal arcs are some of my favorites. Like yeah. when they end up in 1994 or 1995, yeah, Los Angeles, like LA. with Sarah so Silverman, yes. Rain Robinson. Oh, yeah, man. oh my God, Sarah Silverman, major crush of mine. Oh like, man, oh, yeah. Yeah. still, yeah, yeah. I mean, when that first aired, especially, yes. yeah, yeah, it was like yeah. I was the right age. It was like, who is that? Yes. <laughs> Bring it back to DS9. Who is your favorite character? Hands down, Dax. Dex. Okay. Hands down Dex. Dex Easily. the symbiont. The symbiont. All her iterations. But Jadzia is also... Well, God, I love Jadzia. Okay. You know, like, love Jadzia. I mean, it's a close second for O'Brien for me. Okay. Like, because I identify with him a lot. Like, I love building things and engineering. And his, his whole mindset is just, like, kind nature. It is is just... Who he is, family man, everything like. And I think like a Sean Eloisius O'Brien Union man, yeah, you know, like, like that. That's like, like O'Brien and I identify with the most. Like, I love that man to death. Right on. Uh, but, but, Jadzia Dax is probably the coolest of all characters introduced. I think just because the complexities that she gave for the story, like, she has this concept of being male, female, mother, father, uh, widow, widower, uh, uh, like all these, yeah, all these different capacities in one character and, and having to find those facets in a different way. And, and, you know, speaking of which the episode facets, when she gets to explore all the different ones about her and whatnot. And Jarrell. Yeah, Gerard. Gerard, yeah. Gerard Dex. And, uh, uh, no, it's a, Gerard uh, is the one that steals the symbiont for like a day and a half. Oh, that's right, yeah. And, and, um, and they take over the command center. Gerard, Gerard, I can't remember the other ones. I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on the name of the, the evil murderer one. Uh, right. Uh, but yeah, Gerard's the one that steals. That Esri it. also taps into. Totally, yeah. yeah. And uses that. And I mean, like, I, I love the Dex symbiont so much. I mean, like, I have a cat right now. That is named Emony Dax. Wow. Uh, because my last cat that died that was named Esri Dax, so we just keep moving the symbiont around. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> well, there's no shortage of Dax cannon, so you'll you'll definitely have. Uh, and the reason why my first cat was named Esri was because she was a stray, and that we took her in, and so we called her Esri because nobody wanted her. <laughs> Uh, which I make that joke in just because I like Ezra Dax. She's a great character. Yeah. But we all want to jump see it continue through the end. Oh, uh, well, yes, uh, of course. Right, right. And for, for Worf. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, I I have the part of the Destiny novel series. Oh, yeah. Where she's, uh, I think she's captaining the Columbia. Yeah, okay. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, they come across a ghost ship and part of it, which is kind of like a homage to a DS9 episode where they find that down Jem'Hadar ship. Oh, yeah, um, uh, the ship. The where ship. It's upside right. down, yeah. yeah. It's got the changeling inside it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Only, the only female Vorto we ever see. Right, yep, yeah, that's true. Also, shout out Iggy Pop. Yeah, that, yeah. not that episode, but yeah, no, Iggy Pop. Yeah. That's in uh, the Magnificent Ferengi, yeah. and they go to Impaknor. Yeah, to rescue Ishka. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like, that's... I love it when there's, like, cameos coming in, because... If, if you're famous and you have power to do something like that, god damn it, get yourself in a show that you love. Like, I you agree. Know, like, I, I totally agree. More, you yeah. know, like Seth MacFarlane being in yeah. Enterprise and stuff. You know, yeah, like, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. Like, it's funny. And, and now he's gone on to do Orville. Oh, yeah. Now he's got his own <laughs> Star Trek show. <laughs> so, who's your least favorite character and why is it Kai Wynn? Kai Wynn is not my least favorite okay. character. And do you know why? Because Kai Wynn plays that character. Perfectly. She is fantastic. She is supposed to be a villain. Yeah. You're supposed to hate her. She was also Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. that's yeah, she's she's definitely. easy to hate. Yes. You know, give me yeah. wrong. I hate Kai Wen, but I mean, like, she's not the worst character. I mean, like, Fair. she yeah. she does her job perfectly. She is supposed to be this example of power corrupting. I mean, like, like it doesn't I matter guess, about least, religion. Least favorite or doesn't politics. equate to really like who do you hate the who do you hate the most doesn't equate. Oh to, yeah, I hate Kai Wit. Yeah. I hate her completely. I'm Joe, her assistant. I kind of hate him a little bit more. No, <laughs> <laughs> he gets murdered for no reason. I mean, he just didn't. Just don't give her the book, dude. It, yeah. Come on, just don't give her the book. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like 
This Plot is, avoided. We, we need we need people to be safeguards for people in power like right. her. You know, like don't give her the damn book. Yeah, no, I mean like least favorite character yeah. for for Deep Space Nine. Like, like Kaiwen is is meant to be hated. So she, sure. like I can't really say she's a least favorite character because she's meant like that's her. She's fulfilling her role in it. And I'm gonna have to say it's Keiko O'Brien. Okay. I love Keiko in the Next Generation. Hey, I love her in some of the Deep Space Nine episodes, but her character doesn't make sense in a lot of episodes. It's just like it does seem shoehorned in, or like yeah, it, they just it feels forced... like a, a necessity based on O'Brien's presence. Exactly. Like, I, how would you explain away her death or something? Yeah, know? I would like that if she had more autonomy, more like like she had more to do with the story instead of just being O'Brien's wife and, and yes. like, Keiko, I, and like, like I like the episode where she was possessed by the poverty. Yeah, that was yeah. that's a great one where she actually got to do something, but yeah. that wasn't Keiko. You know, right. like, you know, like that was something like it would have been more interesting if like she had more of a challenge that she provided for the family or the dynamic or whatnot you know just something to make it more interesting about why she was i mean like she should have just stayed on bezier and been a botanist or whatnot you know like right like just an ancillary character doesn't, yeah. doesn't need involvement in the yeah, yeah like i just feel like they 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 didn't give her enough you know she should have had a bigger role so I, I know this is a loaded question. Like, what is your favorite season? Because obviously, the climax typically is the season answer, six. Right? Yeah, okay. season six. And, and is it because it has stuff like Cisco as Benny? It, yeah. Well, and, I mean, Far Beyond the Stars is probably yeah. one of the greatest episodes that they've ever done. I mean, yeah. All of Star Trek, and you know, like, and the Bell Riots was season six too, yeah. as well, right? Yeah. So and then it's yeah. also the, the the arc of Martok working oh, in with yeah. like, like and Worf and, and those those pieces, and sure. then like. And then Jadzia dying, and yes, all these pieces, yeah. and then and, and Eddington. Uh, Eddington coming and like making that whole. I mean, Javert. I mean, the the Eddington piece with with Cisco was really well done. Really where well he just done. Yeah. just pointing out like he was so good at so being good. a sneaky bastard. That, yeah. I mean, yes. Eddington and Garrick could have had good conversations. That sure. would have been a good one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's true. I think season six by far, uh, it just, I mean, don't get me wrong, season seven is wonderful because yeah. it's, they do that one long story that's like 16 episodes long. I yeah. love that, you know, peace for it. But it's it's in six, they, they really hit some of those best spots where it's like, I mean, especially far beyond the stars. Like that, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is a powerful episode, you know? Like, well, and I believe, isn't it season six where, uh, with Dr. Mora? And Odo, they find the. I think that's maybe that's five, maybe that's okay. in six, but yeah, with Doctor Moore, like when they find the other changeling, they right. like the, they the, try the, to the raise infant the other. one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they try and bring together, and that really changes and strains their relationship, which is a right. great allegory of just like. And then like, Laws as well. That was yeah. an interesting one. How they encountered, which is played by uh, uh, Martok, same actor. Oh, really? Yeah, Laws is Martok. Oh, you know, it took me a couple of watches to realize that the artist from the. Uh, from Beyond the Stars episode mm -hmm. is Martok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy yeah. who draws the pictures. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me until him, like, being incredulous about something. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's Martok behavior. Yeah, yeah. No, I, love, I mean, they love how they reuse I mean, actors for that stuff. So we, we hear about Wolf 359 mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning mm -hmm. uh, as, like, Cisco. And Jennifer's killed on the Saratoga so right. escaping, yeah. And Cisco's bitter about it with his interaction with Picard. Which well, is, Picard did technically which, do he, it. He did. Well, Locutus <laughs> did it. Yeah, yeah. That's but, that's like saying that Kramer said the N-word. Michael Richards no, said no, the N-word. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. Locutus uh, did it. But yeah. I mean, in his mindset, he's sure, going to be mad about it Picard, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. So I bring the Borg into this because, you know, how do you think the Borg would fare in the Gamma Quadrant? I thought about this a little bit. I think that it would be... Okay, so I immediately bring up the problem with the Borg. I don't think the Borg were well-thought-out species at okay. all. Because they assimilate an infant. They put it in a maturation chamber, and they get a drum. Okay. They have the technology to grow infants in Petri dishes. They can just inseminate and just create... Why do they need to assimilate anymore? It's all about knowledge. But, yeah. but when you need more drones, you can just grow drones. They sure. can just grow unlimited number of. They could breed them. They could genetically I'm sure, I'm sure engineer them. You know, like, I'm sure they do that. I'm sure they prioritize like you know. Wh okay, which 
genetic material is easy, easiest to clone yeah. or mass produce, and I'm sure they do that because, I mean, you know, if you look at any interactions with the Borg, they have no regard for their own safety, if you will. Yeah. You know, like, they'll just sacrifice an entire cube if it means... Joy, but at the know, same time, I always thought it was not thought out, or that, the idea of that, like, their numbers should be endless. Like, like they could just continually grow right. more and more and more and more and more and more and more, and they can manipulate them in any way they want. And so the the whole idea of assimilating, yeah, they want to gain more information and technology. But if you've already like said this is species seven one six one eight or whatever, you don't need any more of them. You got that, you know, like just sure. grow. Why why do they need to? Like, like, I always thought that was an odd choice for it. But this we're getting into it. I think that it would all come down to. If the Jem'Hadar can be assimilated, then all of a sudden maybe the, the Borg were lacking that technology or the refinement to be able to clone and breed that way. And if they got the Jem'Hadar, they're going to make excellent drones. Yeah, excellent right. drones. I, and they I could just make more and more and more yeah, of them immediately. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. They would have had that advantage to it. But at the same time, if do, they could... Do you think that they... Because when they assimilate... Hmm. They're, what they're doing is they're they're taking the technological knowledge, and they're removing the cultural and individual from the then created drone hmm. individuals that they assimilate. Hmm. Is there nothing left of the psyche? Because ingrained in the Jem'Hadar's programming is loyalty to the founders. So some, you know, like how they did with Hugh, and they they mm. re, kind of reprogrammed individuality into him and put him mm. back in which the collective, which just disconnected him. Yeah, like gave him the so chance he, to assert his independence. So oh. if all of a sudden you shoot your tubules into a Gem Hadar, and that white hits you, and you're like, oh shit, like I'm now loyal to the founders. Like, would it backfire into the Borg? Like hierarchy, and then undo I think, the queens. I think that the, like, like, like it might be genetically engineered into them to be loyal to the founders, but there are Jem'Hadar who were able to break from that. So it's true. it's an yeah, idea that they true. had. That I think that the the Borg assimilation process would remove any conscious thought like that. You know, like like sure. they, they would forget the founders if they were assimilated. You know, they, like yeah. just like like Bajorans forget the prophets when they get assimilated. Right, you every know, aspect you know, like, of this. Like, if That's all gone. Just yeah, sure. they're just keeping the physical meat to be able to move it. That the, the thoughts are not there anymore. So basically, as soon as they, because the Jem'Hadar will eventually be overpowered. But and, this know, is the thing: is can a founder be assimilated? I don't think so. Yeah, but maybe. that's a good question. If right? a founder were to be in like a relaxed state and and surprised potentially, but. That would be the ultimate game-changing thing. If a founder were to be assimilated, then the Borg would be com completely unstoppable. You know, like, right. Because then they would never have drones again. They would all be changelings. Well, them. it would, yeah, just, it like, would just take one going to their planet and just introducing just jump into the yeah. jump into the link, the Great Link, and right. now it's all Borg link. And, you know, right. like, so that would be the, the, the big thing. is If the if founders could be assimilated, the Borg take over the galaxy. Right. If, if the founders can't be assimilated, I would say that all the Jem'Hadar die, all the Vorta die, and yeah. then the founders destroy the Borg. Because they, they are capable, you know, if they decided to go to war, you know, if every drop of the ocean of the founder's home planet decided to become an individual, they, they're, nobody's stopping them. I've been nobody curious about this. Them. Yeah, so, like, we, you know, like, do they, because Loss himself is just floating through space as a... One of the hundred right, yeah, that were the, released. Yeah. Uh, and is just taking a, a form that suits him. Hmm. I can only imagine if they were all to leave the planet as one gelatinous mass and then form into whatever it is because they could do whatever they're I mean, they very could become strong anything. I mean it's not just like you're you know like slapping water against something yeah they it's, could become anything I mean yeah. if they all work together they could become something that could swallow a planet why not I mean like they literally could become anything if they all work together I felt like <laughs> the disease that they you know, that section 31's disease developed yeah. yeah and infected Odo with and then in turn he infected the link seems very convenient I understand the point of it though for the story um, they needed to have that leverage for the story otherwise it wouldn't have made sense because how, like, how do you even get in there you, you yeah. can you can never defeat the founders like right. really there's there, like without having something like that like like the, the when when um, Janeway had uh, the opportunity to introduce 
wait, no, I'm sorry. Uh, when Picard had the opportunity to introduce the to the Borg, the the uh, program that would destroy them all, you know, and he wouldn't commit genocide, kind of idea. Sure. There isn't something like that for the, the founders. Founder, yeah. They had to make something else, and so. It was a really good connection, I think, for allowing Section 31 to show how nefarious and volatile they are. Like, they were willing to commit genocide by creating this thing. ostensibly you know? a, ne- a necessary evil. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, and that, that's that's whole that's Sloan's whole justification. Of, totally, yeah. yeah. Which is why I love Bashir and, and O'Brien about it. They're like, we, we are not willing to go down that path. We uh, we live at a higher moral le- level than that, you know? Like, like, when way, O'Brien so, is going underground yeah. into the Orion Syndicate... I'm just like uh, okay. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry, Cole Meaty, but I, I just don't see it, buddy. Like, yeah. Big Beast Cat. Big Beast Cat. Yeah, that's so O'Brien has two pets. He has two pets. Uh, uh, he has Big Beast Cat. Yeah. And he has um uh what is it? Uh Clarissa, Charlene, it's such a see, I can't remember his tarantula. Oh, I forgot that he has a tarantula. He has a tarantula. Right, he asked yeah. Barkley to hold it one yeah. day when after Barkley's getting over his phobias and other things. Like, oh, just keep keep an eye on her. Well, and ironically, he turns into a spider during yeah, the... Yeah. When they all devolve, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that Good was, times. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> I mean, the most important thing about Deep Space Nine, what I love about it, is that it follows the characters through in a way that they all have such huge arcs that matter. Where in a lot of other stories, a lot of other Star Treks, are like like the, the next generation, you'd have a one episode love story, you know, and like nobody likes a one episode love. It doesn't make any sense about how you do it. They'd have these huge arcing stories for all the characters. Like when Dukat has his own bird of prey. God, I wish they had done that more. Like they should have played that out for a whole season, you know, like and that Kira and Dukat working together they fucking hate each other like that was a really interesting dynamic when they do have to work together they have interesting moments like uh when he sits down on the cactus yeah you know and she has to like laugh and they're like, pulling the yeah. thorns out of his ass and all yeah. that you know like like it, 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 I think that Dukat's character arc is probably the most interesting of the entire series because he is, starts a villain he becomes a sympathetic anti-hero and then becomes a uh, a villain again and then becomes a super villain yeah, oh, you know like, like he makes like, like, yeah. like goes to all these different arts. he creates he becomes, a fucking cult man. and right in between becoming villain and super villain he has like a sympathetic moment of loss of his daughter yeah. and Ziel is like a tragic character to begin with you know Certainly, like, yeah. like Dukat is probably the most dynamic character of the entire series and also know, Garrick's like, beard yeah not oh, Dukat but Ziel yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god but I, I will say, though, that if I could sit down and speak to any character that was ever done in any Star Trek, I want to sit across the table from Garrick yeah. all day long. I want to talk to Garrick. Oh, forever. sure. My bearded dragon is named Elim. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So, he's a Garrick. <laughs> <laughs> all my pets are named after Star Trek. <laughs> awesome. Joe, let me ask you this. What's the upcoming schedule here at Growlers? Like, what's the next big thing that's going on? Because we have trivia every Thursday starting at 8. Yeah, it's eight thirty is probably about the time we start every every Thursday. But it's Star Trek Thursday all day long here. Is I, I just put on whatever series that I need to study more, and uh, uh, some hip hop beats underneath it because there's very little actual music in most episodes. It fits very well. It's true, lots of flurries, but not yeah, much just music. A little, yeah, just a little flare up here and there. But the rest, of it, I just put some beats underneath true. it, and, and and just Star Trek Thursday all day. But Wednesdays, um, Wednesdays and Saturdays, there's the Tap That Mic on yeah. Wednesdays and then Tap That Showcase on Saturdays. It's uh, Wednesdays at uh, 7 o'clock is the uh, the open mic for the comedy, and then Saturdays, it's 9 o'clock, this is the showcase. Four comics doing 15-minute sets, and then it's open mic until we close after that, which sometimes is like 1 o'clock in the morning, if anybody nice. wants to come in and use the mic on it. So. And I've, I've been enjoying what what is now a limited run, the, the Hazy IPA, but you, you had a great name for it. The last last keg of this beer in existence I tapped today, uh, and it's the uh, Hazy Frontier, is what they call it from uh, Stormbreaker Brewing, and nice. it's their Hazy IPA. 
Uh, I uh, collaborated with them on selecting the can art for it and giving them the name for the beer, but they took my second choice. Okay. Because Hazer's set to Phasey is a way better name. I agree. Sorry, but well, it just I, didn't fit on the can. I, I, drink, I drink it in that memory. <laughs> there you go. And yes. I look forward to doing future trivia nights. Hey, Joe, thanks for sitting down with me and talking about Star Trek. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Seriously, if you have any love for Star Trek, good beer, and great times, do yourself a favor and head on down to Growler's Tap Room on Southeast 82nd in Portland for all of the above and more. Thanks again, Joe, for hanging out. Live long and prosper, my friend. I'd like to thank my sources for this week's episode, which include ScreenRant.com, IMDB.com, Fandom.com, my own nerd knowledge as well as that combined with Joe's, and of course, Wikipedia.com, because if it's on Wikipedia, it must be true. The topic of next week's episode made me pee my pants as a kid, but that's just because of Kevin Bacon's acting in Tremors. I got to sit down with the very funny Hannah S.K. at my father's place in southeast Portland to dig into the iconic sci-fi horror film before the weekly open mic there on Fridays, hosted by Michael J. Phelps. If you have a love for comedy, do yourself a favor and check that mic out. Some of the best comedians in the Pacific Northwest work on new material there before going to the Funhouse Lounge Midnight Mic that same night. Both great venues that always bring the funny. You can check that episode out on Tuesday, July 26th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Dude, I had so much gosh dang fun at the first ever Shady Pines Festival. There were awesome people, acts, food, face painting, and good vibes all in a sweet little river nook in Oregon City. I'm already stoked for next year. Major thanks to Callie, Brian, Zach, Sarah, and all the other volunteers, musicians, and people who helped make this inaugural event special for everyone who attended. Did you know that you can listen to amazing content 24-7 on Shady Pines Radio? It's true. Don't take my word for it. Go ahead and download the Shady Pines Radio app for iOS and Android in order to tap into the hottest new content from Portland and beyond. Here's the lineup for the rest of Tuesday. You're listening to ShadyPinesRadio.com. Here's the lineup for Tuesdays. Starting at 8 a.m., Science Factual with Reese Hendrick. Emotional Weather Report with Jamie Stewart at 10 a.m. At 11 a.m., Beat Salad with Mason O'Brien. At noon, The Blue Hour with Blue Adams. At 2 p.m., The Prog Hour with Reagan Lindy. Your Own Private PDX with DJ Squiffy at 3 p.m. At 4 p.m., Cosmic Taco Beat Shack with Big Papa Warrior. No Dancing Please with L. Ron Hubbard at 5 p.m. At 6 p.m., Anything New with Shorty L. Toasty Tunes with Alex Toast at 7 p.m. At 8 p.m., Radio Seance with your psychic friends. At 9 p.m., Fresh Unoriginal with DJ Wineglass. And at 10 p.m., Turntable Talk with Chili and Bass. No matter the day or time, you've picked the right time to listen in. Thanks for listening, and tell others. Shady Pines Radio. Radio.